I've got uh, one more question I was going to bring in later, but on Celestia's decision to be incredibly neutral when it comes to not having an enshrined settlement layer like Ethereum has. Um, and you do that one reason to be incredibly neutral. It's also like state management, um, et cetera. How do you think about that decision, though? Because I've seen a proposal, for example, to support ZK SNARK verification on Celestia so that you can have this two-way trust minimized bridge. Um, but to do that, you have to like support certain ZK schemes, which means you're kind of picking a favorite, whether that's like Starkware or ZK Sync or someone else. So you start getting to these decisions where it's like, well, maybe for the adoption of Celestia, it's best for us to actually start. It's almost like Cosmos Hub, for example, did the credibly neutral. We're not going to really support one you know, chain versus the other. We're not going to have a DEX on the hub, but then they launched a DEX and then they took it back. And now it seems, again, they're actually being less credibly neutral by picking like 10 chains that they're going to support. And they're, and they're almost like crowning a DEX, um, for example, doing that. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on on staying credibly neutral? Like, do you think that was the right path? And do you, I don't know, do you, how do you see that going forward? 1,000% the right path. Um, I think, you know, blockchains are, especially like a base layer, the, the main thing, I think one of the most important things, aside from all the actual like technical features and everything, is this deep commitment and alignment to be incredibly neutral. Because if I were building a roll-up, right, and I was thinking about, okay, what's, which stack am I going to build on? If I felt there was any kind of favoritism or, you know, unfair competition or, you know, whatever, it's like, I'm, I would be like, okay, well, you know, screw that. Like, I'm going to build somewhere else where I know it's going to be fair and open. And so Celestia is deeply, deeply committed to this idea of credible neutrality. Um, in regard to the, the ZK opcode thing, um, I think the, so what's important to clarify is that the reason that we wanna have some form of very, very minimal settlement uh, is so that we can actually bridge the Celestia token up in a trust minimized way to rollups. We don't want to be used as like a, a settlement layer like oh you know people should start posting all their proofs there just to like get get final security it's more about that feature of like you know we want to be able to take the, the token and and bridge it up in a trust minimized way and so we're, we're going to keep that very minimal and be very clear that, that that's our goal and we're not trying to compete in in like the settlement domain necessarily and, and you're right that like choosing whichever like proof system we choose to support could like sort of crown a winner or whatever, but also there's another way of looking at it, which is that um, a lot of these proofs can be proven within each other. So like, let's say you're using a different kind of proofing system, you can wrap it in that other proof uh, and then post it to Celestia. Um, but I think it's gonna be a huge upgrade and, and like kind of the idea somewhat stems from Bitcoin actually, where people have been talking about like adding an opcode into Bitcoin to do the same thing. And you could have ZK rollups on Bitcoin. So one thing I want to touch up on is while we're on the topic of maybe credible neutrality, L2s on Ethereum um, have been sort of interesting lately. And what I mean by that is you have the launch of base and, you know, the bald coin or, or token, um, but then base itself, you know, doesn't necessarily have, it's, it's, like, it's like a stage zero from L2B.com, right? And then you have like actually uh, much more further along rollups like Arbitrum. Um, and then you have optimisms of the world, ZK Sync, Starknets. There's a and then Polygon, of course. You have all these kind of different options. Some of them are further along than others. Um, what are you like? What is your mental framework for um, looking at these rollups and the state of the Ethereum L2 kind of roadmap? Do you think it's executing well? Um, do you think they've gone it right so far? Like, what are your your, your um, general thoughts? Yeah, 
Neil and then Nick. Yeah, my personal view is that OP stack pushed adoption a little bit too fast too early. Just because I don't think that the state of their tech is in a position to be trying to convince people to use it at the scale that that they're pushing at. And then the other thing that I think is a little bit misleading is just that a lot of the apps that I think they're pushing people to use on OP stack don't actually economically make sense to run on OP stack, at least as it exists right now. So, but I also recognize that OPT, OP Labs has been working toward fault proofs, and I think that they've been doing some really good work in that direction. Uh, but I think it's also important to recognize like the great work that Arbitrum has done. They recently enabled fault proofs or Fuel Labs who has had fault proofs for God knows how long. So, uh, so I don't want to discount that. Yeah, my, my perspective on it is that, look, um, you know, one, one thing about modular blockchains is that they are technically extremely ambitious because data availability sampling is super hard to build in practice and scale. Um, Rollups and like fraud and ZK proofs uh, are really, really hard to build. <laughs> and so, um, and there's just so much work that has still has to be done. And so, um, you know, yeah, roll-up tech is still very early, that the whole modular stack is very early. And, um, you know, I think I think we have to be careful of not uh, obfuscating the risks and being very upfront and transparent about the actual security of the system. So I think that's, that's what's really important. I think that's part of what people are kind of like, you know, getting up in arms about is like feeling like, hey, you're not being intellectually honest about your tech. And I think that's actually a very healthy thing. And we need to keep each other honest uh, because like, otherwise, uh, you know, like we, we have a responsibility because the users like are in some ways uh, trusting us to, to do our homework and, and to like secure these systems in the way that we say. And uh, overall, I think one of the surprising things is that um, I think that the, the speed at which, um, you know, ZK rollups have come onto the scene, like the, like Polygon ZK EVM, uh, what, 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 uh, you know, Starkware is done and even um, ZK Sync are all like super impressive and like way ahead of schedule, in my opinion. And I would have, I would like the kind of the selling point of, of optimistic rollups was like, oh, well, prob proofs are going to be so much easier to, to build. And, um, you know, Arbitrum obviously has, has really great tech. The stuff that uh, Optimism is doing around Bedrock, like, and, and making like the, the proof system super modular so they can even actually adopt ZK uh, proofs is really inspiring and so like it's not zero sum and i think people should just like give it time and just be intellectually honest um and and we'll we'll be fine in the long run it's a really good answer nick i've listened to a number of your podcasts you're way too nice all the time but but also insightful so, so you're <laughs> honest the whole time so um i appreciate it I, I think a good analogy for me which you see probably on twitter is how um crypto is like building software but with like hardware responsibilities um i've worked at like two different tech startups and if people using our products saw what was going on every day there's no way that they should or <laughs> would pick to use it um but with crypto it's kind of the same thing it's just there's actual like money on the line in smart contracts so it feels different um i do want to touch on Kyle Samani's piece on just a few of the critiques of modular blockchains and maybe things that are looked over. But before I get to that, I just want to give you like the opportunity of maybe say like, why would a developer go with modular approach? It's obviously very difficult to build. Um, I've heard about Celestia for a long time now, and I've like been really pumped up about it, but um, I don't think we're on mainnet yet. So um, it's almost like all this work up front, but there's a reason you're doing it. So from a developer's perspective, like why is it exciting that you could, you know, have access to these modular, modular parts? Well, first I want to start by acknowledging the merits of Kyle's piece because I think maybe some. I think there was like there were some uncharitable interpretations of it. 
I like that. So it looks like he did his homework, and I, I think that that's really cool. And modular blockchains don't really make things faster. That's true. They don't necessarily make things cheaper. And these are some of the points that he raised uh, in his post. I think the parts that he misses is he talks about what's theoretically possible on an L1 if a developer works around the constraints of it. But to me, it really comes back down to ownership. And it's like when you own the blockchain yourself, you don't need to jump through hoops or you don't need to work with the core developers. You can just push a change to your execution layer. And now, and it's because, because it's yours, you're the one who now gets that functionality and you don't have to worry about, um, about convincing other stakeholders other than your community. Or another example, he talks a lot about MEV as being a new monetization opportunity and how that's not really true. Uh, one is that it, some of the approaches he mentioned seemed a little bit cumbersome to implement in practice. But two, it seems to miss a really obvious point, which is that, and I think Kyle himself would have to admit that L1s have some business model outside of MEV. Whatever that business model is, if you're an app and you have your own app chain, now you also get that business model. So un unless it's really true that like apps can capture all the value from the L1 or L2, at which point like any, any L1 or L2 investment would be very bearish. Um, and I, I don't think that's true. And a great example of that is if you just look at Base, for example, uh, they launched officially just earlier this month. They've already earned millions in revenue. Base, if they deployed to Ethereum or to Polygon, they would not have accrued that value. They wouldn't have been able to capture that. And the reason why they did is because they're a big enough organization that they were able to draw developers around them. And it's like the ability for an app to actually turn itself into more than just an app, but also an infrastructure and an ecosystem where they can accrue the value that they're actually driving. So that's the way that I would probably reframe the piece. And I, I think that there's someone on my team who's actually writing something up more, more thoughtful. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the synopsis. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and say that um, I felt like, like Neil said, Kyle definitely did his his homework. And when I read through the piece, I was like, you know, these are these are solid points and solid arguments. Um, I felt, you know, I, I wrote a thread kind of as a response. And some of the things that I like want to push back on is first, like he claims that like modular makes it way more complex for developers. And um, that's just not true. Um, and in fact, I mean, like the, the long term, one of the things that we believed in Celestia since the very beginning is we want to make it as easy to deploy your own blockchain or your own rollup as it is to deploy a smart contract. And like at first, that really seemed like a pie in the sky like vision, frankly, because it was everything was so raw. Uh, but we're actually really close, like like approaching that very very quickly. And the, like you can even go online, try like Conduit or Caldera or Vistara, that there's all these roll-up as a service companies where it literally is like one click and like a minute and you have your own roll-up. And so like the, the point is in the modular stack, it doesn't inherently increase complexity, but it gives developers sort of the ability to go into more layers of the stack and customize and that becomes more complex. So you can actually write your own, uh, you know, virtual machine or you can you know, customize the EVM with, with specific pre-compiles or whatever. So you have the ability to customize if you're, if that's what you want to do. But if you don't want to, you can literally just deploy, you know, an EVM rollup or SVM rollup out of the box. And it's really not much harder than deploying a smart contract. And so uh, like, it really doesn't increase complexity unless you want complexity, it gives you the choice. And that's why we always say, at Celestia, like build whatever, because we, we really, one of the, our core beliefs is like, Thing, developers will be able to build better apps if they have more freedom, more freedom to choose from different components, more freedom to go and customize 
And so I think that's like a, a really major one. And um, he also tried to claim that like MEV is something that, um, you know, apps like smart contracts, like you don't need to build your own app chain or, you know, to, to capture MEV. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that it's not possible to do that. I think there's ways of clever, like clever ways of building a smart contract so that it can capture MEV. But like inherently the way like MEV arises from like validators or sequencers, right? Which are kind of like outside of the protocol. But, and so you like the, the deeper into the stack you can go to customize things, the, the more you're going to be able to actually design the system to capture MEV. So like a really great example of this is what Skip is doing in the Cosmos ecosystem where they, they've developed this thing called protocol and building, which is more for like app chains, but can be modeled very well to actually application specific rollups. And what, what that is, is basically that there's like validity rules within the chain state transition itself that enforce what kind of MEV can be captured and then how the MEV profits are distributed. And, or even there's things like, okay, well, we're going to choose an entirely new execution model where like the transactions, let's say I'm a DEX, instead of having all the transactions be uh, processed like in serial, they're batched together and it's all done at once. But like you need to go deeper to customize to get there. So like, uh, and, and MEV being one of the biggest like value capture uh, sort of like avenues for uh, applications, at least as of now, it, like I think that's really, really important to like give builders and communities access to that. Yeah, though Kyle's response would be like, give me a specific application and MEV example, and I will give you a specific co smart contract construction that captures that. So like in the case of like one of the uh, auction situations you mentioned, like you could impose like a sealed bid auction, and then you do like a Dutch auction off of that, and then you return the value back to the application. Technically, you could still capture it if you internalize. Like, of course, it has like longer block times if you do it that way. But, uh, but like theoretically, you can still capture it. I, I just think it's very cumbersome too, and and it, I just also think it misses the fact that there's more monetization opportunities than just MEV. Like, it, it's just like too narrow of a view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's well put. Um, what one thing that I'll say is like I think he's also like specifically referring to app developers as well, just people who want to like. Know, deploy maybe a consumer or payments app on top of the blockchain as opposed to maybe like a pure blockchain developer but um it actually brings up a point that i want to touch on which is kind of towards the end of the piece he talks about the fact that you know this stuff like this is possible but he hasn't seen many examples of it so far um and then he he references cosmos the cosmos ecosystem um what are your guys' thoughts on kind of the cosmos ecosystem modularity versus kind of l2s and rollups as a service and like how do you guys how should people who are not familiar with this think about it so i guess my, my view on it is that for an l1 you have you need to have a bunch of validators those validators must all run full nodes so you're burning some amount of money every month and this can often be like millions of dollars per year whereas for a roll-up you just don't have that same fixed cost but the trade-off you're making is that when you had your own l1 then there is no marginal cost. You're not paying rent for each of those transactions that's processed on your app chain. Whereas when you're on, when you're a rollup and someone runs a transaction, you do have to write that to a layer one, whether that's to Celestia or whether that's to Ethereum or somewhere else. So that's a marginal cost that you have to pay, but you have way lower fixed costs. So what this means is that apps that were previously uneconomical to run as their own app chain can now run as their own app rollup. So to me, that's the fundamental difference. Yeah, Neil, Neil hit the nail on the head. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that Cosmos 
uh, has been extremely influential in the entire sort of like modular vision of, of Celestia and and beyond. And you know, we use the Cosmos SDK, we use Tendermint or Nouns Comet um, to to build our chain. And uh, you know, Cosmos was the, the first people who realized actually you can decouple consensus from execution, but they did that at the software level, right? So they kind of modularized the software stack for building a blockchain, and that made it really easy to customize the state machine of, of your chain and build an app chain, for example. And then Celestia kind of took that a step further and said that, hey, actually, we can modularize not just at the software level, but at the protocol level itself. So now, instead of having to, like, you you know, you take Tendermint or Comet and, like, get a bunch of validators and launch a chain, it's like, actually, Celestia can act as your shared Tendermint network. And, like, what Neil said, that so there's a couple of big advantages. The first one is, like, it, you just get to share by sharing resources, uh, you can save, like dramatically save on costs. Like running an app chain is extremely expensive for a lot of different reasons, just like the actual infrastructure, the social, like, you know, cost of like actually coordinating everything and, and maintaining everything. And like all of a sudden you can just remove all that and just pay transaction fees to run your chain. And so that's like a, a massive, massive uh, leg up on the economics. And also it, it removes the need for you to issue your own token when you, when you want to lo- launch a new blockchain. And so I think that that's really huge. And then another part of it is that um, when you share a common consensus and DA uh, protocol under the hood, your app chains get a superpower, which is they can interoperate in a more secure way um, because like they can actually verify each other's data availability and they can like actually reason about the ordering of the other chain's blocks. And so you get this like fundamentally new level of security when it comes to interoperability. They're almost more like, even though they're, they're separate chains, they're almost more like, they're kind of between like smart contracts on a shared uh, blockchain, like Ethereum or Solana, and like fully separate chains. They're, they're kind of like, they're separate, but then they're they're sharing this underlying security that they can like actually talk to each other, not atomically, but they can interoperate um, like super securely. Why would you build on Eclipse versus the Solana, you know, L1? Um, and that might be because you have something that'll motivate a specific use case. So here's your thoughts. As far as like why deploy to Eclipse or in particular our SVM L2 on Ethereum, I think that the number one reason is to access Ethereum users who in general are less price sensitive. So if you want the cheapest, absolute cheapest transactions, then you'd probably want to be on the Solana L1. But you get this free bridge and Ethereum users, I think are really going to like the idea once we launch our mainnet of just like immediately benefiting from this highly parallelized virtual machine, which is the same as Solana. Uh, and we get to borrow a lot of those great innovations that uh, Tolly and the team have made. But then they also get to be within the ecosystem that they're comfortable with. They can use ETH to pay for gas. Uh, they, they get a lot of the stuff that Ethereum users are used to. So, and then we, we have some collaboration with a major Solana wallet where we're building a MetaMask snap. So this is like a MetaMask. It's kind of like an extension to MetaMask where you can use your MetaMask wallet on the Eclipse chain or on SVM chains. So that's going to be a really big unlock for the Ethereum community. Awesome, um, yeah, I agree. I'm 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 super bullish on the SVM and, and Eclipse. Um, not financial advice. Um, one thing that I'm curious about, which is kind of unrelated in a sense, but I thought it was an interesting take on Twitter. Fubar recently tweeted that uh, decentralizing sequencers isn't really the point of L2s, and maybe it's maybe not even worth the effort. Uh, what really matters is getting rid of multi-sig control and and and, and proofs. Yeah, there's some cases where, so what are you really giving up when you have a centralized sequencer? You don't give up safety or liveness in the formal sense. 
of course, you give up liveness guarantees in a, in a short term because usually the way that you regain liveness theoretically is through some sort of forced inclusion through the L1, which probably has longer block times and blah, blah, blah. So you, you don't really give up anything from a security perspective is my point. But what you do give up is that that single sequencer has a freedom to reorder things as they see fit. And they can continue doing that indefinitely. So that's the way that I see it. And for some DeFi applications, I think that'll prove to be really difficult because you don't want the sequencer to be trusted in doing that. Uh, and it'll, it'll end up being like a really profitable avenue, assuming that one sequencer has a lot of really high value order flow. But I think that it's true that for a lot of apps, like games, for example, they probably just want the lowest latency or the shortest confirmation time, at which point a centralized sequencer makes a lot of sense. So, but I wanted to hear Nick's take too. Uh, I think Neil um, did a good job of, of explaining it. Like the way that a rollup, basically what FUBAR is saying is that um, rollups are supposed to be uh, trust minimized and ensure the, the, like the state validity or like the, that the, the rules of the rollup are followed. And until you have fraud proofs and ZK proofs and all that stuff, uh, like they're just not, they're fundamentally not secure. Like that rollup operator could actually just steal all your money. Right. And uh, I do think that that is actually far more important than what decentralized the sequencer gets you uh, in the sense of what decentralized the sequencer does is it makes it so that you have better censorship resistance and, and liveness, depending on the construction of the of how the rollup is sequenced. And uh, because like that, that sequencer could just decide like, hey, I don't like you. I'm not accepting your transactions. All of a sudden you're, you're kind of screwed or like they could just decide, hey, I'm just going to or they maybe they, they they're wherever they're running their node, like there's a power outage or something. And all of a sudden the whole chain just halts, right? So you, censorship resistance and liveness are really important like features of, of blockchains, but I don't think, I don't put them in the same level of priority as like just straight up validity uh, and verifiability of, of, the, of the underlying like execution. Now, for a long time, that was kind of a, an issue, an open issue. It's like, okay, well, one of the benefits of running a rollup is that you don't have to, bootstrap a new consensus network or sequencer network right uh because like that's a lot of overhead socially and then you have to run all these nodes it's kind of like oh man that's a lot of work and if you have to do that for every single rollup it's like we're not really getting the full benefit of of these systems and um, that was like a problem that was constantly bothering me for a really long time up through last year and then um evan one of the engineers on our team had this idea for and we, and we had this concept of like okay how can we have a shared sequencer right so that you can actually deploy a rollup that has all these benefits uh, without having to actually bootstrap the sequencer yourself. And he came up with this really cool construction of actually how to do it. And now there are a few teams, uh, Astria and Espresso building out and, and also like Fairblock, there's a, there's a few like Radius, a bunch of teams building out these systems so that you can actually, um, yeah, have a decentralized sequencer but without having to add more overhead. Uh, Cause that's also one of FUBAR's points is like, well, why would you even decentralize a sequencer if it's gonna just, compromise on the value prop of, of a rollup, which is that like, you only need one node basically. And like, there's less overhead. Uh, and so like, the, that's the cool thing about a shared sequence is you get the best of both worlds where like you get decentralization, censorship resistance, liveness guarantees while not needing to run new infrastructure for yourself. Yeah, and what's really cool is that I think there's a place for Solana, the L1 to play in the sequencing space. With Neon, now it could be the one to order EVM transactions across many rollups and maybe multiple neon deployments could represent multiple rollups that need their sequencing done then you just need something to relay those transactions to the l1 that the rollup ultimately ends up wanting to publish their data to 
but there's some nuances there. Like Neon uses a specific version of the EVM, which is likely not the same as many of the more recent rollups that were built. And we're still thinking through the details of what that would even look like. But uh, but I think that there's some place for uh, Solana to play there. And we were just talking about it with Tolly a few days ago. So that's that's one thing to note. One other thing to keep in mind is that I think that people get obsessed with the words centralized and decentralized because that's a remnant from L1s where that was a critical property in order for the system to operate in a trustless way to whatever degree trustlessness actually makes sense as a concept because you're, you're always kind of trusting something. But uh, for a roll-up, you don't necessarily... There's, it's possible for a system to exist where a component or multiple components are centralized, meaning there is one logical entity that represents them, yet the whole system is still fully verifiable and it's still permissionless to enter. And it's still, uh, I, I hate using the word trustless, but it's still trustless to some degree. I have actually two questions. Uh, so so bear with me here. Uh, one is I, I just want both your takes on Neon EVM and, and kind of, you know, EVM compatibility on Solana, which is an interesting concept that I don't think people have talked about that much. Uh, and two, this is kind of unrelated, but, I've seen kind of in the modular world multiple futures proposed. There is there are some futures where people think maybe one, two, or maybe even three L2s will kind of just dominate everything and all value will or execution will uh, flow through them. And then there are some who say like there will actually be many different and, and diverse kind of L2s and L3s and whatnot and fractal scaling. Which approach resonates more with you? Which do you think is more likely to happen? Which do you prefer? I could see the largest K apps, and I'm reluctant to say what K is, but maybe the largest 20 or 30 apps having their own chain. So I certainly don't see a world where it's just two or three L2s. And I also feel like there are few benefits of the world where there are only two or three L2s versus the one where we have a diversity of execution layers, all with different social norms and different types of pre-compiles. Like I was mentioning before, to me, one of the chief benefits of modularity is ownership, meaning that you can pass governance proposals and you can modify that execution layer as you see fit. And that's just not possible if you're sharing the chain with many other people. So that's my view on uh, on the number of chains. It's hard for me to put a real number on it, though. Yeah, my that's a really, really good question, Mert. And, uh... Frankly, like the jury is still very much out. And actually this kind of also relates to Kyle's post in the sense of like, you know, he thinks that composability is so important that literally every app should just live on the same thing. And actually that's not incompatible with a modular uh, world either. Like the modular world could end up being that there's literally just one massive execution layer that takes up all of Celestia's block space. So like, if that's actually the way that things play out, then like it's, it's like, it's, that would also work in a, in a modular framework. Um, where I see things going is that um, I think there's going to be a spectrum, and I think there's definitely going to be uh, general purpose execution uh, L2s, you know, in the ecosystem. And what people might do, right? And and this is another thing is like, in order to build in the modular stack, you don't have to roll your own and like deploy your own blockchain. You can build on one of these general purpose L2s too. So people will probably start building apps there. Maybe apps that really need a lot of composability, like certain DeFi things, will, there'll be like some DeFi hub where all those things are there and they get atomic composability. Um, but then if people, like they might try out their app as a smart contract on a shared uh, execution L2, and then they like 
get some traction, they get some product market fit. And then they're like, hey, you know what? In order to take our product to the next level, in order to capture more value or whatever, you know, we're going to actually have to deploy our own rollup. And then they kind of like make that transition and actually build themselves into their own chain. And I think that that's, I think the incentives to building your own chain, if you have a successful application, are going to be so massive that like what Neil is saying, like I think that all the top apps, like breakout apps are going to do that. And there even could be a world where if you become like the Google of decentralized applications, you might even go off of Celestia as a DA layer and actually just maybe build your own standalone chain, for example, like maybe you, maybe you need that level of customization and it's worth it. Like the trade-offs are worth it. I don't know, but I think like there are huge incentives for a successful app to, to roll their own chain. But like a lot of people might just experiment as a smart contract because like, it's just, it, it will be easier. You'll be able to like tap into more like an existing community, et cetera. That's such a good point raised by Nick that that's also my personal view that apps should start as smart contracts and start by deploying to a shared chain. And if there's some reason why, whether it's because you want to capture more value or you're hitting the constraints or you're really trying to push the limits of what's possible on chain, then you build your own rollup. And like Nick mentioned, there's some amount of transaction volume where that fixed cost of an L1 now makes sense for you to incur because you've sufficiently amortized it. If you're running hundreds of millions of transactions per year on your chain, it probably does make sense for you to be an L1. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind. I want to get into like network effects and value accrual. And Neil, you had a speech that I think the title was rollups as a service are going to zero. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious in this this world where, where you have like ETH as this settlement layer, then you have like Solana, which is this global state machine. Then you have Celestio, which is DA. Um, you have shared sequencers. Like where does value accrue in this world? Because I have this like smiling curve, which you can just think of a smile going up and down that I more or less made up, but it's from Ben Thompson. On like the, the left, I'm saying... There's definitely going to be, or at least in my mind, uh, there's going to be demand for a global state L1. Like there's just some use cases for that. Um, probably not number two through 100, but there will be a number one. Um, you're going to have something that's like a settlement layer, or store value, which would be like Ethereum or Bitcoin today. You're going to have these top apps, which would be like the 5% top of apps, which would be like Fang that you see in um, equities. And then at the bottom of the smiling curve, where it's like the lowest value is where all the competition happens and like things are commoditized, which in my head was like the modular infrastructure and then just the majority of apps. So I'm curious, like across this whole spectrum, because now we have this giant supply chain. It was so easy. We went from Bitcoin to Ethereum and now it's like this giant thing with all these tokens. Where does value accrue and like where are the network effects? I was trying to make sense of the smiling curve, but I unfortunately <laughs> didn't have enough time to think about it. But I was trying to think about what are the economic first principles that led to that smiling curve construction. And I can see why the top of the stack should have some pricing power or should be able to maintain some value accrual because assuming that there's some stickiness there, then the bottom components should be able to be swapped out. That was my thinking. But I wasn't sure about the rest of the, I, it depends on the application too. Like I'd argue that Uniswap as an AMM on the ETHL1 to some degree is kind of stuck there. Like they can't just fork and deploy to their own rollup and bring the community with them and necessarily get that same amount of volume. And I think that that's a bit of a misconception. And the reason why is because the liquidity is on the ETH L1 and they're the winner there. Whereas if you look at some of these other chains like Arbitrum, GMX is the winner. It's not Uniswap. Yet Uniswap is deployed there and Arbitrum wants them there. They've given them millions of dollars of incentives. So... That's like one one thing. It's like depends on the type of app. And I think that something such as an order book or a perps exchange or something is much better suited to switch the pieces under the hood 
and just swap their UI, I, I think their users are going to be much more receptive to, to that than trying to convince your LPs who have already put their money into a specific blockchain uh, to now move to some other chain, which which you control. I think that's that's less likely to get traction. So it depends on the app. It depends on the stickiness of the given part of the stack. And it also depends on how much that part of the stack is worth. So in that post, rollups of the service are going to zero. The reasoning that I went through was basically going through the functions of a blockchain that Nick was talking about, execution, consensus, DA. And then I also threw in settlement because it's proper, it's popularly cited as a function of a blockchain. And I point out that at least for optimistic rollups, settlement gives very little money back to Ethereum. And to me, that's not really the advantage of Ethereum or the advantage to Ethereum of being a settlement layer. The advantage to Ethereum is that now they've increased the moneyness of ETH and everyone's using it as the lingua franca and they're using it to pay fees and therefore everyone's sitting on ETH. I think that's what a lot of people do because there's no reason to convert to USDC and then to ETH every time you need to do something. It's just impractical because it's the denomination for so many items that we buy. So I guess that's the store value value point that you were getting at, Garrett, when you put that on the far right side of the curve. And I don't know if that's really value capture so much as, uh, like, yeah, value calling that value capture, I think I have to think about a little bit more. Like, what does it even mean to capture value? And to me, it means when a user pays a fee, how is that fee split across all parties? And ironically, Ethereum itself makes a very little of that fee, assuming you're using Celestia for a DA uh, and you're using a roll-up on Ethereum, but the whole fee is paid in Ethereum, and therefore Ethereum still benefits. So, yeah, I'm interested to hear Nick's thoughts, but it's something that it might be something that we just need to see in practice, what users have the most sensitivity to and where they have the most demand elasticity. Yeah, well, I was uh, very surprised when Neil, uh, he tweeted and, and shared the, the, the thing that like Ethereum makes something like $5 a day or something in settlement fees or whatever. I was actually completely blown away. I was like, I mean, I knew I had, had a feeling it would be like pretty low because like, you know, you just post some data to Ethereum. That's all you do, especially if you're, this is for optimistic rollups, but like $5 a day, I was like, wow, that is like such, <laughs> so minuscule. Yeah, it's I like was, the order of the 64 bytes posted fairly infrequently because like if it's two weeks challenge period anyway, what, what difference does it make if you're off by one hour? Uh, sorry to cut you off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, you know, for, for the way that I see, I guess, value accrual and, and sort of the economics of all these these chains to work out is that, um, you know, I actually, in some ways, block space is a commodity, but in a lot of ways, it's not. Um, and, you know, I think you know, so like what, what block space is to me is like this, it's like a consumable good where, you know, it gets produced by a protocol and then people decide like, hey, we want to run our application uh, on that block space. And they'll, they'll make that choice for a variety of different reasons. Some of it is just like the raw cost, you know, the security and decentralization of it, like how verifiable it is. There's like all, all these like dimensions of, of like why they're choosing to consume certain block space and not others. And uh, the question you have to ask is like, well, are any of those dimensions of choosing to, to use a given block space, uh, do they have any network effects around them? And I think um, when you when you go down that path, you realize that there are uh, there are a few, but like, I think the most important one is that kind of what I was uh, getting to earlier, which is that um, when by by like 
using a shared DA layer and consensus network like Celestia, you're now kind of tapping into like a broader ecosystem. So there's actually like this, you, you become close, more closely aligned and close, like easier and more secure to interoperate with the whole universe of rollups that are built on top of that same shared DA layer. So um, you start having, like as, as the ecosystem grows, you start having a larger incentive to deploy there. Um, and also there's, there's like network effects around the amount of scale versus cost to verify the block space. So uh, the way that um, light, light nodes work sort of in a DA sampling network like Celestia is that um, the cost to verify the block scales as the square root of the block size. So as you get into bigger and bigger block sizes, your chain can support more and more throughput for less and less additional marginal costs on users to verify it. So then like once you kind of get to scale, if someone else is trying to build a new DA network, like those users that want to verify it actually end up having to pay more to verify it per unit of block space. And so I think you, you end up kind of getting these like economies of scale. And so I think for, for those two reasons, and there are a few more, um, like th there will be strong network effects and like block space is not commoditized. Like I can't, I'm not just going to have like, you know, some random dude like, hey, I made a DA chain. Like, why don't you use my block space? Like, you know, we, we've also seen that not play out uh, practically even in like the monolithic realm where people like you can make a copycat EVM chain, but people aren't going to want to use it uh, for, for similar reasons. You have this trade-off or like these two opposing views. One is like the fat protocol thesis and the other is the sort of like fat app thesis. And the fat protocol thesis is like, well, the, the underlying L1 is going to be able to capture all the value because that's like <clears throat> kind of they, they, get, they have like the ultimate power over all the 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 MEV or, you know, whatever, like they, they kind of are like the, the, the last buck. Um, and then the app, fat app thesis is like, well, actually the applications are the ones that are going to be able to capture those value because they're closest to users. And I actually see the modular world as sort of like a, a synthesis of those two um, worlds where like there will be value that accrues to, um, you know, the infrastructure layer for providing like block selling block space. But rather than trying to limit the scarcity of the block space to extract more value from users and applications, it's about actually providing extremely scalable and abundant block space uh, so that people don't have to pay exorbitant amounts, but there's still like a, a you know a, a healthy margin for, for for selling that block space. And meanwhile, then the rest of the value capture can go to, to the applications. And I think um, long term, it's kind of like you know, we have all these Web2 apps who run AWS or Azure or, or whatever on the background backend, and they're paying some of the profit of the entire stack goes into the infrastructure layer, but then a lot of it also gets captured by the apps themselves. And I think that's kind of like a good analogy for how to think about how it would play out, in the, at least in the modular stack. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I guess we've never seen an L2 switch DA layers. Maybe we have, maybe Nick would know better. But if you just look at the way that these L2s calculate the gas fee for the user, they have some Oracle for the L1 and they take that gas fee or the the price for block space, that estimate as an input into their price calculation. So that tells you that the L2, at least in the short term, is not elastic in its demand. It pretty much pays what the L1 tells it to. We'll close up here in a, in a moment. I, uh, I have one more question that I wanted to ask both of you. And one of Kyle Samani's papers actually about Three, two to three years ago when he was first talking about Solana, he talks about like how 
if you're an enterprise, it's a big deal to pick the right tech stack. Because if you pick the wrong one, it's very hard to switch, et cetera. And you need that consistency. And you also know that it's going to be able to scale in the future to support your business. When you think about institutions, both from your experience today and also just how you see it over the next 10 years, do you see them like Coinbase today is talking about payments on Ethereum, which is extremely expensive and rather slow when they could be on Solana and using like Solana Pay? You have like one dependency layer. Whereas if you go this modular route, like, do they just spin up their own blockchain, their own data availability committee, where it's like, okay, we get to control everything ourselves? Or do they actually use, like, we're going to use this shared sequencer, and then we're going to use a Celestia for data availability, and you have all of these different dependencies. I'm just wondering from a practical perspective and what you're seeing today, where do you think these institutions, which we will need eventually, what do you think they'll use? Some of the largest players that we've talked to, particularly game studios, have, I've had the same exact experience where they say, we're going to build our game on Ethereum. And in my head, I'm like, what are you doing? Like that game's not even going to, no one's going to use it because it's going to be so expensive. Uh, but they're very risk averse. And then another value add, and this is kind of a benefit of modularity for games, but it's that they don't have to pick a specific vendor if they're on their own rollup. Now they see themselves as de-risk because even if the L1 implodes or something similar to what happened to me when I was building on Terra, if you're on your own rollup, then that's a little bit less of a risk for you since theoretically your chain is still running and you can move elsewhere. My, uh, my view on this is, uh, and I've been saying this for a while, uh, and I felt kind of, I feel like this thesis has been uh, increasingly validated, especially with like the launch, launch of base um, and some of the, the newer like OP stack uh, launches, is that uh, enterprise users are actually the perfect, uh, are the perfect like sort of customers for rollups and for for modular blockchains because um, they want the things that rollups provide. Specifically, they they want more control and they want more customizability, uh, and they they have the resources and they have the user base, but they don't have to worry about being fragmented from an existing ecosystem. Like they like base doesn't need Ethereum. You know, it doesn't actually really need to be part of Ethereum to like get users or like, you know, other like PayPal, let's say if they were to do their own rollup, like it's the same thing. Like they have a users existing, like they don't worry about that stuff. They they can spend the money to do the development work to build their rollup. And in, in return, what they get is this like dedicated like instance that is customized for their app, providing a really good product experience and they get more control too. Like they can, you know, bake in KYC or they can, uh, make it you know free or like have some kind of paymaster thing so that they they pay fees on on behalf of users or there's all these different like customizations they can do and so I think personally I I, I think that like uh, and, and another another really important part but although this is not a differentiator with like um, uh, building a smart contract version of the app but like why wouldn't they build their own L1 is that like if they built their own like L1, like a, like an app chain like Cosmos, they'd have to issue a token. Like they would have to run more of the infrastructure themselves. And then that's all kind of like this legal gray area. So it's kind of like they'd rather just avoid that. And that's the, the beauty of, of, of doing a roll up is like, you don't actually have to issue a token. You don't have to run an L1. Uh, it's much, I think, well, in some ways there's still like risks obviously, but like, I think it's, it's less risky. Um, so to me, I think we're going to increasingly see more and more enterprises going the route of, of rollups. All right. So we've done uh, some some solid thinking this this episode. Thanks for your perspectives. Now we're going to get a little bit more lizard brain. I'm just going to ask brief questions, uh, brief answers in rapid fire section. 
obviously feel free to expand. Uh, and then we'll just go Neil and then Nick in order every single time. Okay. Um, how do you explain what you do to your parents? I don't. My parents have never understood what I do. Even when I was at Citadel, they asked me, what are you doing? And they were so interested in electricity and commodities. They weren't really interested, but at a high level, they were just curious what I was spending all day doing. So I wrote a blog post called Explaining to My Parents What I Do. And I explained <laughs> the power market. And I got so many uh, positive responses to that post. It was top of Hacker News. People loved it. And then I found out months later, my mom didn't even read it. She read like the first <laughs> sentence and then she gave up. Neil, you should send that to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll send it right now. Okay. Nick? Yeah, I on my end, uh, I remember when I first uh, actually read the Lazy Ledger white paper and was just like totally just consumed with passion. And I, I tried to explain it to my my parents. And I I must have to them been like the meme of the guy with the whiteboard, you know, and like all the pins and like, you know, because they were just like, okay, we can tell you're really into this, but it makes no sense. And so I just, I kind of like fall back on this idea of like, you know, I'm, I'm, what we're building is a way for like to scale trust for for humans uh, using cryptography and that'll kind of like form a new fabric and a new way for for people to interact and and, and uh, sort of cooperate on a global scale so that's kind of what i say and that's also very vague <laughs> but it seems to at least make a little bit more sense what are your favorite three apps in all of crypto I think that Uniswap is king to me for its simplicity because there were other AMM constructions before it. And I thought that, uh, that it's partly the reason, part of the reason for its adoption is because it's so easy to understand what's going on. And obviously they've gone beyond that and it's inspired so many things. I think Helium's a great idea and it essentially created an industry of decentralized physical infrastructure networks, which I personally am very bullish on. I recognize it's a bit of a bet. And if you look at the economics of it today, Maybe it's not super sustainable, but that's the whole idea. And I think if people miss the concept of DPINs, which is you allow for a wild speculation on the token, and you can use that speculation to make the network real, and it makes it a thing. And it's like a weird type of company where you release a stock on day one and let people buy it, and then they pay for your services in the form of the stock. It's, it's just hard to make sense of, and people keep comping it to Web2 stuff. And I think it's a completely broken way of assessing crypto protocols and it's, it's not the right way of modeling it uh and then the last thing is probably this is like a controversial one but i think if the concept of axie reached so many people and it did more for mainstream like crypto awareness than probably the vast majority of like what what a crypto maxi would call is like oh this is like a good app it's doing good things for the world I thought Axie overall actually did do good things for the world. And what they did was they raised awareness. They're trying something different, whether it's economically sustainable or not. They hit the limits of scalability and they were forced onto their own roll-up slash side chain. These are all, are all very bullish indicators to me. Yeah, I, I'd say, well, so my first two are a little Cosmos-centric and DeFi-centric, but um, I'm a big fan of, of Osmosis um, just because... I, I really love they're they they're sort of like to me validating the, the app chain thesis in the sense of like they have really kind of integrated all these pieces and are building the equivalent of like a, a sex experience, centralized exchange experience on a, a decentralized exchange. And like there's like you know, deposit and withdrawal. And it's, I, I really like that as an idea. And I think someone needs to build something like that long term where like 
you know, people aren't using Binance, they're not using these centralized exchanges. Instead, like they're they're using a decentralized exchange, but it gives the same thing because we can't have another FTX again, right? Like we we need to learn and like evolve. And that's if we can't do that as like a baseline, then we've kind of failed in my opinion. Next one is sommelier because they're I think just it's so clever um what what they've done. So they've built sort of like it's sort of like a you know yield sort of like a earn vault platform but it instead of building it natively on ethereum and most of the strategies aren't deployed on ethereum but it's like a dedicated chain and by by being its own app chain it's able to execute strategies and have another layer of, of like security and sophistication that you couldn't do so i really love that uh and uh, people should check that out um and the last one i would say i was i would have maybe said something like axie but i'll uh i'll just like say DeFi kingdoms partly because uh you know i used to uh, be part of the harmony team and uh, that was a really big breakout app for the Harmony chain. Um, but DeFi Kingdoms, it's, it's just really cool. Like gaming in general, I'm very like bullish on like, sort of the inter- intersection of, of blockchains and gaming. And I think DeFi Kingdoms would like explore like a new dimension of that uh, that was like kind of like DeFi plus uh, gaming dynamics. And I think there's, there's something there, you know what I mean? Like, like in-game economies and DeFi, I don't know, some, someone's going to crack that code at some point. So you mentioned gaming is, is a sector you're bullish on, and Neil, you also mentioned Deepin. What is the vertical that you're most bullish on in crypto, and what is the vertical you're most bearish on in crypto? Hmm. Bearish on in the short term or long term? Because right, I think that in the short term, I'm just a little bit bearish on crypto gaming just because the economics of it, at least fully on chain gaming. Let me clarify. I think there's versions of crypto gaming that make a lot of sense. But fully on chain gaming, the value of the transactions is just too small. So I don't see that ever existing in any version of an actually decentralized blockchain. But that might be okay. If you want to use the blockchain as this read-only API and you want to interoperate with all the rest of crypto and you get to have assets that can be you know, ported out of the game and stuff like that. And to some degree that exists in Web2, like with Steam items API and there are AP, uh, Eve Online has something like that. So I, I guess my point is that it depends on on how you view the purpose of the blockchain for that. But I'd say decentralized, fully on chain gaming. I'm not super bullish on, and I'm very bullish on the deep end category just as a whole. And I like that stuff just partly given my background in commodities. A lot of those guys come from a commodities background, so we can nerd out on power and oil rigs and stuff like that. Uh, and they often don't come from a crypto background. So that's our opportunity at Eclipse to be those infrastructure experts and tell them what's really not needed or what's the right construction given what they're building. So most bearish, uh, I, I might say something like real world assets, not because I actually think that it will, I think it's like a very good use case. Um, I guess what I worry about is like, it just seems like it's going to have a lot of like regulatory sort of like headwinds and like that's, you know, in DeFi in general, like the, the regulatory side of it is going to be, I think, really challenging until we get like clarity and we can like be above board and like then we'll be able to actually onboard people and scale it up. But it's like going to be a challenge. And I think real world assets are really good, like w- within DeFi are like specifically really challenging uh, for that for that exact reason. Um, and more, most bullish on, um, I don't know, kind of like either either social or gaming. I feel like there's there's something there. There's like a virality in social apps and, and gaming apps that, um, you know, if someone can crack the code, I think it could blow up overnight. And like, you know, things like friend.tech, which is kind of trending right now is a good example of how like 
there's that built-in virality. I mean, like most of those apps so far, like kind of like blossom and then and fade, but like someone might actually get it to the point where it like blossoms and is able to like sustain and continue growing. And, um, and so that's, that's where I feel like mass adoption is most likely to come from right now. That's a really good point. On RWAs, sometimes I feel like it's kind of like the idea of putting an encyclopedia, like when the internet was made, taking a meat space encyclopedia and just putting it on the internet. It's not leaning into what makes the internet great. And similarly, taking real world assets and putting them on chain. It's like there's so many other things you can do on chain that are interesting. You should maybe lean into that. And I feel like people in bear markets always come back to the same concepts, whether it's real world assets or formerly known as securities tokens, which was a horrible name, uh, or whether it's like assessing Web3 companies as if they're Web2 companies and trying to model out their ARR when it's like that's that's not the right way to be thinking about it. Uh, and in that same vein, I'm very bearish on social applications that don't lean into financialization. That's why I mean, I love that Frentech was so polarizing. People are like, oh, it's the worst parts of crypto. Counterpoint is that it's actually the best parts. It's taking financialization and applying it into this ga- gamified social experience that has built-in virality, as, as Nick said. So I think leaning into those aspects of crypto is going to be much more fruitful than trying to reject them. Okay, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, last question. What is something you've completely changed your mind on since starting in crypto? The settlement piece is one thing. I used to think, because people cite it so often. They're, everyone's like, everyone wants to be a settlement layer. Settlement's so important. Just over the last six months, just every, everything that I've looked into and even John Charb's piece, all this was very damaging to my concept of settlement. And I'm just, uh, anything that describes itself as a settlement layer, I'm very suspicious of at this point. So that's probably the biggest thing. And then, I mean, I started in crypto during like, peak bull market my first project was on the terra blockchain so honestly it's just com- my view has completely changed I, I it's hard to even come up with things that were the same from when i first started for me um you know it, it, this is particularly embarrassing but like when i was building harmony and in general when i was like first learning about blockchains i didn't actually go deep enough into fundamentals and uh frankly i didn't really even realize that verifiability was actually the, the, the source of, of the security of a chain. Like I didn't understand the role and importance of full notes. Like, uh, and I think this is a really widespread misconception. And some people, even when they, I think when they understand the role of full notes, they still somehow like cling on to this other idea of what, what blockchains are for. Uh, and like that it's okay to trust the validators. Like, cause that was, that was kind of my mental model was like, and, and then if you think about it, like sharding itself, uh, never solves that problem. It's like you're still you're just trusting the validators on the shard. And you're you're making this root assumption that all the validators that are participating in the chain are honest, and like that is just fundamentally not what blockchains are for. And if they were, then uh, you know we would just why would not just have consortiums and like why would we need a blockchain? Like we just have a like a bunch of Web two companies run all these decentralized services, right? So uh, I didn't understand that for a really long time, and it wasn't until like really getting deep in the weeds into Celestia and Lazy Ledger and rollups and everything that I was like, oh, wow, my eyes started to open to it. And I was like, oh my God, okay, wow. Like I've been just like totally misunderstood what's really going on here. And I think we need to do a lot more work to educate people and like kind of like reconnect to the the, the core principles of crypto from the very beginning. Um, and there's, there's a lot of work to be done on that. 
That's a really good point. Like if you ask a re- like a random person on the street or when I started in crypto, certainly before really like reading up on this stuff, if you ask them if most of Bitcoin's overpowered, can Bitcoin steal your funds? They'd probably answer yes. They'd probably assume, oh, that's what the honest majority assumption means, 51% attack. That's not possible. Like that's that's just not how, how the blockchain works. Yeah, it's it's really funny. I, I can feel so dumb in this space, but then I can feel like everyone else is so dumb, even though we're so smart because we're like, oh, we discovered intense or like our rollups real. Like we discovered like we talk about these things that seem so obvious and like, you know, a fifth grade level when you're looking back at it. Um, but obviously it's extremely complicated. And um, last point on the settlement issue, we just had uh, Anatoly on and he's probably one of the few people that probably even, you know, two years ago was talking about how settlements, not an afterthought, but how it's not near as valuable as what people talk about. Um, he's like, that's not the fun part. Um, but guys, thanks so much for coming on. I think it's really exciting, Nick, what you're doing with Celestia and also Neil building out the SVM. And I think together it's fun how you can work together, but also like not only does Ethereum benefit from this, but Solana can and then obviously all these app chains in the future. So thanks so much for coming on. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, well, thank Jeff. you guys so much. I have a lot of respect for the Solana community and, and what you guys are building and um, looking forward to, you know, this, this modularism, not maximism thing where we all can benefit from each other, like you were just saying. So, Yeah, and we're going to be working hard to push adoption of the SVM to the Ethereum community. Uh, we're really excited to be partnering with a bunch of Solana projects on this launch that we're uh, pushing pretty soon, a bunch of infrastructure projects and uh, wallets and stuff like that. So if you're a project in the Solana community, I appreciate you reaching out uh, for anyone in the audience. Sweet, guys. All right, we'll talk to you next time.